Welcome to Tales of My Dead Heroes. I'm Josh Allen Friedman. In these last two episodes, 16 and 17, I've come to the grandest guy of them all. I met Doc Pomus when I was 21, and for a few years became attached at the hip. Doc was in a wheelchair, but maintained a full-time handler and chauffeur so he could maneuver around the city to joints that had wheelchair access. We'd hang at the Lone Star Cafe, the bottom line, Kenny's Castaways, and the Bitter End every week. We'd stop after midnight for cornbread and po'boys at Barking Fish, this insanely good New Orleans takeout joint located at the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street. We rolled in the Docmobile, a mobile van decked out with a pneumatic lift and a desk with his wheelchair locked in place. Bands Doc helped book at the Lone Star or Bottom Line would divvy up their cash in the van at 4 a.m. Then we rolled back to his apartment on West 72nd Street. Mac Rabinak, a.k.a. Dr. John, was Doc's new songwriting partner, and he was always there at the apartment in his own world, shooting up in the bathroom. He'd never even talked to me. Late-night guests to Doc's apartment would include Big Joe Turner, the great songwriter Otis Blackwell, various drifters and coasters, and Ronnie Spector, who became my girlfriend. Phil Spector was always calling in, while Doc would hold court like a rock and roll sage sitting bolt upright in his king-sized bed, with all kinds of downhill women strewn across. It was all somehow innocent, though, because everybody loved him and was drawn to his presence. To me, it was almost like heaven. Now my room has got two windows, but the sun shall never come through. You know it's always dark and dreary since I broke off, baby, with you. I live on a lonely avenue. I'm going to start by reeling off some of the standards written by Doc Pomus, many with his first partner, Mort Schumann. Save the last dance for me. This magic moment. I count the tears. Hushabye. Youngblood, a teenager in love, Lonely Avenue, Viva Las Vegas, Little Sister, His Latest Flame, A Mess of Blues, Suspicion, There Must Be a Better World Somewhere, Can't Get Used to Losing You, Boogie Woogie Country Girl. Doc Pomus's songwriting career can be divided into three acts. During the 1940s, he was perhaps the only white blues singer in America, cutting a few dozen 78 records on blues labels backed by musicians from the Duke Ellington Orchestra or Count Basie. His singing career was about to peak in 1956 with the release of a surefire record called Heartlessly, which Alan Freed broke on the radio. So heartlessly You left for me Alone to cry In misery But when RCA found out he was white and crippled, on crutches after contracting polio as a child, they killed the record, which effectively snuffed out his singing career. Second act. In 1957, an unfinished song he submitted to Lieber and Stoller called Young Blood became a smash for the coasters, and he was off to the races with his much younger songwriting partner, Mort Schumann. They signed with Hill and Range Publishers in the Brill Building and wrote 10 songs a week, placing more than 60 hits on the charts. And then, in the mid-60s, as rock groups wrote their own material and the need for professional songwriters diminished, Doc's partner, Mort Schumann, left him. As well as Doc's wife, 
of 10 years, both in the same week. He fell down a flight of stairs and ended up in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. He moved into the Runyon-esque Hotel Forest on Old Broadway, across from the Brill Building. He was defeated by the music biz and played backroom poker games where gamblers were routinely kidnapped or shot. When I met him in the 1970s through my association with Regent Sound Studios, he was gearing up for a comeback in music, his third act. Here he talks about his greatest years at the Brill Building. As I said, there was a certain kind of camaraderie in those days. For instance, if you half wrote a song and you needed an ending to a song, anybody was around would come in and help you or you would do the same for them. And it all went uncredited. Oh, yeah. Like I've been in the room with so many hits, man. So many people have been in the room and you never thought about it. Or if they would produce a record, we'd all be here in the rehearsals and helping them. And now it's all big, secret, big business, you know? I, I talk to some of these artists, and they're more involved with understanding the machinations of business than they are in the craft. I've been in the room with so many hits, man. This was Doc Palmas talking on January 13, 1978. I cringe at the questions I asked when I was 21 years old, but Doc was patient and answered graciously, never condescending. As with my own father who taught me about writing, Doc schooled me about songwriting. Over the years, he answered a thousand questions. He taught me how to listen to blues, how it was tongue-in-cheek, often self-mocking, all that self-pity not meant in earnest. There were happy blues and sad blues, but the two classic distinctions were between urban and delta blues. The urban had more to do with jazz, swing, and big bands, city and ghetto life, whereas the delta blues was folksy, using bottleneck guitars, cigar box instruments, Guys mumbling, as Doc saw it. You never knew what the hell they were talking about. The Chicago people were crossover guys, like Muddy Waters. You know what's amazing? He continued. When I made my 78 records in the 1940s, we used to laugh at all the singers like Muddy Waters. When the rock stars started using them as opening acts, all of a sudden these guys became well-known. My group of people, Joe Turner, King Curtis, Mickey Baker, used to laugh at all the country blues singers who were backwards musically. John Lee Hooker and Lightning Hopkins sang out of meter. We couldn't respect them. This was my first assignment for the Soho News, six months after Elvis died. I pitched it on the premise that Elvis Records was selling like hotcakes, and here was one of his principal songwriters, Doc Pomus, whose royalties had come back in bloom. Here's Doc talking about his transition to full-time songwriter in the mid-50s. I met this young kid who was playing and singing and I wanted to start writing a lot more and I felt that the way to do it was to write so many songs and if you bombarded all the markets with songs some of them are going to get some in. of them are going to get in there and that's what happened I taught this kid how to write songs and we were knocking off 10 songs a week 12 songs a week was this Mort Schulman? yeah Mort Schulman. when I met him he was 15 years old jeez and then I got married and we were starving to death. I went, the first year I was married, I made zilch. I made not one quarter. And the second year I made $50,000. I mean, and then, then it stayed like that. Keep in mind, the established songwriters of the American Songbook, Irving Berlin, Richard Rogers, Alan J. Lerner, Frank Lesser, all of them hated rock and roll. 
They called it three-chord manure, gorilla noise. For instance, listen to how the character of Conrad Birdie's brill-building songwriter, played by Dick Van Dyke, was parodied in Bye Bye Birdie, which was set in 1958. When you wrote Conrad's first hit, Ugga-bugga-boo, then I knew that was it. You were through with English forever. I always wanted to hear Ugga-bugga-boo, but alas, songwriters like Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller, and Doc Pomus lived under this heavy shadow with no recognition buying into the idea that they wrote disposable junk for kids. They had no idea their work would become a new American songbook, inspiring every generation to come. Let me explain, there were certain great differences then and now. For instance, the music was confined to these kind of sleazy theaters and sleazy halls. Now, you must remember that the only kind of publications were like uh, fan clubs. So in other words, you have teenage stand. magazines? Right, that kind of thing. Weren't there any like, jazz magazines back then? But they had nothing to do with that kind of music. They didn't even cover it. They didn't cover it. But today you must realize, every every newspaper has a contemporary critic. They have oh, all these okay. magazines that are on a particular literary level. And so at that time, there was always the association. The writer always had kind of an association with sleaze and with juvenile delinquency. This is a statement from 1956 attributed to Frank Sinatra, the greatest singer of the 20th century. Sinatra would of course change his feelings later in life. My only deep sorrow, he said, is the unrelenting insistence of recording in motion picture companies upon purveying the most brutal, ugly, degenerate, vicious form of expression it has been my displeasure to hear. Naturally, I refer to the bulk of rock and roll. It fosters almost totally negative and destructive reactions in young people. It smells phony and false. This rancid-smelling aphrodisiac, I deplore. It is sung, played, and written for the most part by cretinous goons. Well, what made it worse, I was married to an actress at the time. And she was embarrassed by it because her friends were all theater friends. You know, she was, I had a house, you know, a swimming pool and all that shit. And we had nothing, I had nothing but these Broadway characters hanging around the place. And I was very self-conscious about the work. But I thought, God, I used to think in terms of Johnny Mercer and Irving Berlin, you know. I said, if I could ever achieve, achieve cha- a fame like Johnny Mercer or Irving Berlin, what the hell else do you want in life? Every, everybody knows you. You got 50,000 50, women, you know, it was all like that. Then I wrote those songs. My ex-wife used to look at me strangely. Fucking people that came to the house didn't pay attention to me. And if they asked me what kind of songs I wrote, I was very apologetic to them. I, you know, I mean, now if I'd written a fifth-rate Broadway song, my God, I would have been proud of it. A fifth-rate Broadway song. Thank God, by the time of this interview in 1978, Doc came round with the rest of the world and started to take pride in his work. For fact, I didn't really respect my work till 10 years later. And I, and I had such a total lack of respect for it that uh, I stopped for years, wrote intermittently. What do you think caused you to suddenly respect it? Well, I think I started reading about myself, you know. And suddenly, you know, I looked, I started evaluating the material. And I realized, what, what's more valid than the truth, you know? And there's a kind of truth to this music, to country music, you know, and to the blues. 
a nitty gritty truth to this kind of music, and it's, and it's such a, a, a truth that people can appreciate on so many different levels. So I started getting happy with it. Check out how the simple street language of a teenager in love evolved, as Doc and Morty wrote in their Brill Building office here in 1958. Must I be a teenager in love? One day I feel so happy. We had a lot of fun. I mean, there was great camaraderie. In the field, there was camaraderie, you know. But the cleavage between the people that did the work and, and any kind of people on any level of intellectualism or cult or anybody involved with culture was ridiculous because. We, we couldn't. In other words, you didn't, have any, rec- kind you of didn't have any recognition no, like, for all those the years. The only time I, I found it was when I went to Europe. It was a different ballgame in Europe. Because in Europe, for the first time, if you had a popular song, it was popular with everybody. It wasn't just popular Which with Which countries in Europe? I was in England, England, Germany, and France. And in those countries, there was tremendous acceptance on every level. Not only on, like, on a sleaze level, as it was over here, but the adults. And then the reporters were people of intelligence that I could speak to. I couldn't believe it. I had never been exposed to anything like this. Doc Pomus and Morty Schumann went on a promotional tour of London in 1960, where three different versions of A Teenager in Love were on the British charts, the Dion version and two covers by British pop singers. The reception was the first time they experienced a mainstream press acceptance as songwriters. Doc remembered thinking it was funny that in England, they mostly just copied American music. He wondered why they didn't put their own spin on it, come up with something new. Well, little did he know what the world was in store for in just a few years. But anyway, back in America, Elvis was returning from the army, and that's when Doc and Morty came into the picture. Elvis would record about 25 Palmas and Schumann songs. Well, no, I went out there originally to, to write some material for Bobby V, and I ended up writing material for Bobby Darren. And, and uh, uh, we wrote some material for Bobby Darren and for Presley. Because the songs that were rejected by Bobby V were recorded by Presley. They were Little Sister and His Latest Flame. They were both rejected by this guy for Bobby V. Can you imagine rejecting Little Sister and His Latest Flame? And Bobby Darren tried to record Little Sister, but he couldn't do it. It was, you know, not his kind of song. He couldn't sing it, you mean? And he just couldn't get the kind of thing on it he wanted to get, you know. So he never released it? He, he didn't do it. We, we rehearsed it with a band, too, but it never quite, it just never quite came off. It was that time he was married to Sandra D, and she was pregnant. And she was very, uh, ex- uh, she was very uh, upset, but she didn't want to record any rock and roll. She wanted him to become, you know, a pop artist. Uh, and, w- and she wouldn't even come to rehearsal. She was hysterical. She would... And her mother, they lived with her and her mother. And both of them were incensed at the fact that he was recording rock and roll. That was always my impression of Sandra Dean. She only wanted it to be another Frank Sinatra. Poor guy. I don't even know what number this became, but listen to Doc and Morty work up a song in their little cubicle in the Brill Building. 
Adjoining were little piano rooms with Carol King and Jerry Goffin, Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil, Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry. Lieber and Stoller are above in the penthouse. As collaborators, Doc wrote 80% of the lyrics, 20% of the melody, while Mort wrote 80% melody and 20% lyrics. Baby girl, why you can't come back home, never no more in life, baby, get it out your mind. Darling, get it out your I mean, it's confined and it's ugly. You're going to sit there and write to get out of there. You just want to get out of that room, you know. And that's what used to happen. Doc had the crazy idea back in the 1950s that rock and roll music could be written as a Broadway score. I remember when I was writing with Mort, I wanted to do a show. I felt there was a way of fusing, you know, rock music, and they all laughed at me. After for two years, I hounded everybody. They couldn't see where, it, where there was any truth of a show going to Broadway. They, they couldn't see an audience coming to see it because they felt that the only audience was like a 15-year-old and under audience, and there was no way to reach any adults into a theory, you know? Doc was irritated by misinformation and falsehoods perpetuated by publications like Rolling Stone. On three recent occasions, they credited songs he wrote to other people. In the 1970s, music producer Don Kirshner became the producer and host of a hit TV show, Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Yeah, let me clarify a couple of things. I'll give you a couple of truths, you know, because I read the, I read... In Rolling Stone, an article about the Brill Building, mm -hmm. and they inferred that uh, uh, Carol King, that myself, and Morty were influenced by Donnie Kirshner operation. Now, the truth of the matter is, I put Donnie Kirshner into business, and I looked the first time it's going on record, by the way. Hello. And Donnie Kirshner was dating a cousin of mine, so. He, he was a songwriter, no? so he was writing songs with Bobby Darren, and he used to question me, he used to pick my brain all the time. So uh, he, he showed me his songs and I told him they're terrible. He asked me if he could make more money as a, as a, uh, as a publisher than a songwriter. I said, you'd be much better off as a publisher. But then he got a backer by the name of Al Nevins, and they went into business together. But they needed some songwriters, so they offered Morty and myself a deal, but it wasn't enough money for us. So I recommended Neil Sedaker and Howie Greenfield to them. And Neil and Howie were two kids that hung around our office, and he said Neil and Howie lived in Morty's building. They were kids out in Brighton Beach. So he signed up, Neil and Howie, for a small amount of money a week, 
and that's how they got in business. But I've never heard Neil say that's how he met Donnie. I've never heard Donnie say that's how he met Neil. And truthfully, there's nothing these guys could ever do for me, but for the record. Now, so that's how Donnie got in business. Now, soon after that, Morty and I were very successful, long before Donnie was successful. And Carol King would be the first to tell you that her and her husband Jerry were greatly influenced by Morty, the music that Morty and I wrote. And they'll even show you which song came from which song we wrote. And they used to tell us about it. And, uh, and then when I read all these ridiculous articles about how we were influenced, Michael, we were influenced by nobody. I'll show you five or six songs that we wrote. There was never a song like it before. Where we would deliberately do something like that. Like I remember, I used to write a lot of Phil Spector also. And Phil and I would do the same thing. We'd sit in the corner and say, man, let's try to do something new, you know? Like Phil and I once wrote a song. I mean, I'll give you an example. We wrote a song called Young Boys Blues. Now, the incredible part of that song is that it's one sentence. The whole song is a sentence. Nobody ever got hip to that, but it was like a private joke that Phil and I had, you know. Mm. And if you ever see the song anywhere, you'll see it's, it's Every time I kiss somebody new, I make believe I'm kissing you, but I can't kid making heart cause my heart knows we're still apart and each night is like a thousand years oh, I can't lose these young boy blues And on that sentence, we will continue next episode as things get up close and personal with Doc Pomus. Thank you for being with us at Tales of My Dead Heroes, and I'll conclude the season next episode. Visit our website at blackcracker.fm for photos and links to this episode, and you can read the stories that led up to this series in my book, Tell the Truth Until They Bleed. This is Josh Allen Friedman. I'll see you next time.